Good morning. Uh, let me add my welcome to the one that Dan's already given you. Uh, my name is Christoph Ebbinghaus. I'm the minister here in the church. If you're visiting with us today, uh, it's lovely uh, to have you here. Uh, I just want to thank Dan and the, the musicians and singers for leading us uh, so far. Um, forgive me for my special voice that I have today. Um, I, I think it's going to work, but it, it just sounds a little bit uh, different. I've got a bit of a head cold, so uh, please bear with me. Let's pray uh, just now. Father, it's, it's brilliant to gather to remember your goodness in the harvest, uh, to remember that everything that arrives on our plates is, is a gift of yours. But Lord, at this point, we want to remember something that Jesus said uh, as he quoted the Old Testament, he told us that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that you speak. That's a, a food fundamental to us if we're to live well and wisely. So Lord, help us for a moment just now as we come and we eat a little uh, on your word. Help us to receive it, to digest it, and to take the life uh, that you long to give us through it. Amen. It's been great to be here this morning to be celebrating God's goodness. And I just love those uh, little uh, pages the kids have done at the end of the pews. Make sure you read some of those uh, before you go this morning. They're uh, a lovely mixture, as, as it always is, with kids of the profound and stuff that would make you smile. So uh, just read that and be encouraged. Uh, by the kids' reflections on God's goodness. The harvest comes because God sends new life into the world. Uh, we see it in our changing seasons. Each springtime, God sends new life uh, into the earth. He sets in motion processes and energies that result in, in wonderful crops, the kind of thing that we're uh, celebrating here today. So in each autumn, we, we harvest uh, that life that, that God has brought to us uh, and we receive it in our bodies in the form of food. This morning in the passage we've just read, Jesus talks about new life as well, but, but in different kind of terms, a different kind of new life. And it all takes place here in this conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. The way Jesus report, or, or, or John reports Jesus here, this in-depth conversation this private interview. It's quite typical of John. Uh, we'll see it time and time again as we read through John's gospel, that he loves to get us up close uh, and personal with Jesus. Uh, this won't be the last time that we'll eavesdrop on a long conversation uh, that Jesus has with a, a particular person. So the conversation kicks off when Nicodemus, a rabbi, comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God wasn't with him. Nicodemus has seen Jesus at work. He's heard his teaching and he knows that there's something special about this guy. So he wants to come and have a look, get closer. I had always thought that the story of Nicodemus and Jesus started with a question from Nicodemus because Jesus says some pretty big stuff in, in this interview, this conversation, but it doesn't begin with a question. It just begins here with Nicodemus telling Jesus that he's impressed with his teaching. No question, just a bit of flattery. 
Jesus doesn't really bother very much with the flattery, if, if you notice what he says. He cuts to the quick in verse 3 and he says something very mysterious. I tell you the truth, unless a man's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. That's a weird sentence for us, I think, for a number of reasons. For a start, what's the kingdom of God? What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? Whenever Nicodemus heard mention of the kingdom of God, he would have thought of it instinctively as, as the good life, life where God is king. And for some of the Jews of the day, it meant freedom from Rome. When the kingdom of God comes, it's not anymore the kingdom of Caesar. For others, it meant a, a purer, more moral way of life. And the truth is, for Nicodemus, it probably meant both of those things. We, we could believe that about Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee. We know from other parts of the New Testament, from other writings outside of the, the Bible, that, that Pharisees would have had very high moral standards. So there's no sport on, on the TV on a Sunday in Nicodemus's house. He'd be too busy at church anyway to, to get to watch any TV. He was teetotal old-fashioned conservative clothes. So you get the picture. Talking about the kingdom of God, these Pharisees had made it the work of their lifetime to, to welcome the kingdom of God. They thought that by their righteous living, they were preparing the earth for, for God's kingdom to come. So if there was anybody who ought to be expecting to see the kingdom of God, it would be the Pharisees. And here's where the conversation starts to get quite interesting. What would you expect Jesus to say to a guy like Nicodemus? Nick, you're a great guy. You like my teaching. You've seen the miracles I do. To top it off, you're a great, a religious bloke. Kingdom of God? Well, it's for guys like you. Of course, you're in, no question. And it's not what Jesus says, is it? Instead of putting his arm around Nicodemus and saying, Nick, you're one of the boys, you're one of the gang, you're just like me, you're in, Jesus gently draws a line of separation between the two of them. He says nobody is going to see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. Nicodemus, you're churchy, you're religious, you're a Pharisee, but you need to be born again. You and your Pharisee chums, everyone needs to be born again. Worth pausing there for a second because it's not what we expect intuitively. This isn't how we understood things. Surely a guy like Nicodemus is already sorted. He's a religious leader for goodness sake. He, he's... He's good living in all the ways that a person could be. Surely that kind of person is already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Well, if we learn anything in these opening exchanges, in this conversation, it's that religious people aren't any closer to God than those who aren't religious. They're no closer to the kingdom of heaven than anyone else. Morally conservative people need to experience a new life 
every bit as much as the worst reprobate. Being churchy, respectable, religious isn't what it's all about. And all of this takes Nicodemus a bit by surprise, and that's why we find him coming back at Jesus. Born again, Jesus. Born again, me. But that's impossible. Now, I think it's great as a grown-up to come back to the stories you learned in Sunday school because you get a chance to have another look and another think and maybe see them a little bit more in full color. We need to to be careful we don't do Nicodemus a huge disservice here. Let's not imagine that he thought Jesus was talking about literally being back in his mother's womb, okay? He's a bright guy. He's a, a political leader in the land. I, I don't think that's the point at which Nicodemus finds this all difficult. The reason Nicodemus doubts that a man can be born again is because he knows what we all know. And that's that our adult personalities are very resistant to change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. How can a man be born when he's old? And in the remainder of our passage this morning, we see Jesus holding this ground, insisting that it's not only uh, possible, but that it's necessary for grown people to be born new. We're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning dealing with three questions. This new life that Jesus is talking about, what kind of life is it? Where does it come from? What should I do? Verses 6 to 8, Jesus begins to give Nicodemus a little bit more insight into the kind of life that he's talking about. You're right, Nick, I'm not talking about going back somehow into your mother's womb. I'm talking about a birth of water and of the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of debate about what the, the birth of water means. In the interest of time, I'm just going to tell you which interpretation makes most sense to me. In chapter 1, verse 33 of John's Gospel, John tells us of the occasion when John the Baptist, if you remember him, the guy who's preparing the way for Jesus, he explains his work and he says this, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie. John's saying, I baptize with water, but there's a guy coming after me. He's going to do something way beyond that. I'm not even worthy to tie the laces of his sandals. See what Jesus is saying here? He says, no one's going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless they're born of water. And by the way, John's baptism was one of repentance. So a person would need to repent, need to turn from the life that they're living. They need to be born of water, but, Jesus says, they also need to be born of the Spirit. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Verse 6, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. These sentences seem quite weird, but there's a very simple thing at the heart of this. Just as it's a physical woman giving birth to a physical baby that leads to physical life, the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, 
is something totally different. There's no way a human being can grow from here over to here just by natural processes. You don't grow into a person who's in right relationship with God, a citizen of the kingdom. It takes the spirit of God to enter our lives and to transform us, to bring us from here to here. That quantum leap into a new life. There's nothing natural about entering the kingdom of God. It's not natural. But it's not impossible either. Receiving the life of the kingdom, the life of God's Holy Spirit, it's not natural. It's not impossible. But it is critical. Look at verse 7. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Jesus makes this new life compulsory, not optional. Sometimes in conversation, I meet people and they'll describe somebody else to me, maybe a member of their family, and they'll say, he's a born-again Christian. To distinguish him from normal, ordinary Christians. There's a, a category in this person's mind that's a born-again Christian, and then there's other people who aren't born again but are Christians. Jesus says, no. The only person who is, is alive in the kingdom of God is the person who's been born again in this way that he's talking about. It's not a spiritual extra. It's a necessity. One day, George Whitfield, the famous preacher, was challenged by his sponsor, the Countess of Huntingdon. And she, she asked him, uh, why is it that you preach so often from John chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again? Why do you keep going back to that? You must be born again. And Whitfield replied, Madam, because you must. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a bit like Nicodemus. Grown up in the church, religious uh, and moral by any standards that, that you adhere to. Jesus says to you, you must be born again. And maybe you're not like Nicodemus at all. You're surprised to find yourself in a place like this. You don't think of yourself as religious. You, you don't make a big deal of morality. You, you live the way you want to live. Jesus says to you, you must be born again. Unless you're born again of the Spirit of God, you'll never live the life you were created for. You'll be restless for your place in God's kingdom. First question, what kind of life is it? It's the new life a person experiences when God's Spirit enters them. Second question, where do we find this life? You can tell right throughout this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus that Nicodemus is struggling to, to understand what Jesus is saying. He thought that that was the big problem, that he didn't understand that 
intellectually he couldn't satisfy himself. Actually, his biggest problem wasn't of the intellect. His biggest problem was that he didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. He didn't know who he was dealing with. You can see that in his patronizing comment in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. See what he's saying here? He says, I'm a member of the Jewish faculty selection committee. And we know, we can tell when we hear a good teacher, someone who's worthy to be listened to. It's like a third form maths class telling Albert Einstein that they think he's got something with the arithmetic. We know, they say to Jesus. Nicodemus has no idea who he's dealing with. Nicodemus, you're asking the wrong question. Rather than asking Jesus, how can this be? How can I find intellectual answers to all my questions? You ought to be answering, asking, who are you? Who can this be? And Jesus does engage with Nicodemus somewhat. But as he usually does in these conversations, he doesn't allow the subject to be dictated by his conversation partner. He often deals with those things courteously, but he makes sure that, that the important things that he needs to say are heard. Jesus makes this conversation in the last part of it all about him. He says that I'm the place where you find this new life that we're talking about. So in verse 16, he says uh, what's become the most famous uh, words in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You've heard that verse a million times. Notice one thing about it that actually I hadn't thought about very much. Those are Jesus' own words. I always thought they were quite flat. You know, they were maybe narrator's words. They're not. Jesus speaks those words about himself. Whoever believes in me He's saying, we'll have eternal life. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus hints at just how this life's going to come about. And he says, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is talking here about a, quite a weird incident that happened as the people were traveling through the desert under Moses' leadership. There was a point when they were rebelling against God and God released a plague of poisonous snakes into the camp. And the people called out to Moses and they said, pray to God for us, that he'll, he'll rescue us, that he'll save us. And we read in Numbers 21 that God said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole and put it up there for the people to look at. Whoever looks at it will live. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Nicodemus, one day you'll see me suspended on a pole, just like that snake in the desert. Whoever looks to me then will live. It's in my crucifixion it's in that moment when I give my life for you that the person believing in me finds this new life. 
Nicodemus thought that unanswered questions were his biggest problem. How, how can this be? And maybe it's the same for, for you today. You've got questions. How can a loving God send people to hell? How do faith and science stack up? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Those are good questions for us to be asking. And, and we have tried to deal with them in our church life here very much in the recent past. But it's not theological questions that finally keep us from God. It's our unwillingness to surrender to him. To say Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. I'm going to surrender to him. I'm going to become his disciple. What kind of life is this? It's the new life of God's spirit. Where do we find it? In Jesus Christ, the one who died to give us new life. Third question, and finally, what should I do? The final verses of our passage, Jesus tells us that it's going to take a change of heart for anyone to receive this new life. Look at verse 19. Light has come into the world, Jesus says, but men love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds are evil. Folks, we, we may well have questions. All sorts of questions. But in the end, Jesus says that the reason that we reject the life that he offers is because we know that it means moral change for us. People don't become Christians because they don't want to change. They don't want to give up the right to determine for themselves how they will live and live instead under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm going to suggest that there are people here today who at the, deep le at the deepest level of their honesty know that Jesus is telling the truth. Know that he is who he says he is. That he's telling the truth but are choosing to continue to live in the darkness and not to walk in his light. It's not that we can't see the light, it's that we choose not to live by it. This is the verdict, Jesus says. Light has come into the world, but human beings loved darkness. There's new life on offer in Jesus Christ. But to find it, we're going to need to change. We need new eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. New ears to hear his call as an invitation to life. A new heart to believe that we'll be better off leaving the darkness and coming into the light. We need a total makeover. We need to be born again. Let me pray. Father God, it's great to be here today to celebrate the life that you give us through the earth. We thank you for it. Lord, we thank you that you do so much more 
than that for us in Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus you give us life for our hearts and for our souls and for eternity. Lord, we pray that you would change us, move us, crack us open, and prepare us to receive the new life that you offer to us in Jesus. Lord, we want to be born new. We want to leave here today as fresh and full of life as a newborn baby with all that hope and all that possibility in us because your spirit has come upon us. Lord, give us your new life today, we pray. Amen.